0: Heavenly Father we plead for your kindness that you would speak. We pray for your spirit in our hearts that we would hear, that we would love your truth, that we would willingly repent and that we would joyfully give ourselves to Christ. Father please do this work for Jesus sake. Amen. If you remember last week's passage, we were kind of knee deep uh, in what you might call emotional persuasion. Uh, The Apostle Paul had sent three of the most famous Christians in the world to the Corinthians to tell them to come good on their word and to remind them that the promises that they had made had caused other people to give and it was about time for them to come good for goodness sake. But as we read it, we felt a certain level of discomfort, didn't we? In fact, a person I was talking to afterwards said last week, Paul sounds a lot like he's using emotional blackmail. <laughs> and there's this deep kind of discomfort as Paul puts the pressure of honour and shame on the Corinthians to come good on their word. And yet just at the very end last week, we noticed this little turn. As Paul says, in spite of all of the pressure... I want you to do it willingly. Chapter 9 and verse 5. I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. And that idea of doing it willingly, Paul's about to double down on in this last part of the chapter. In fact, if you jump over to verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I don't know exactly how you would summarise this, but my summary of Paul's message is basically, you must give willingly. Um, Now, I, I mean, for me, that's kind of... Those two words are like kind of Superman and Kryptonite, right? So, willingly I get... As soon as you bring the must along, it's like the willingly shrivels away and dies and loses all of its power. You must give willingly. Now, as if that's not problematic enough... The very foundation of Paul's argument about how or why you're going to give willingly, I think, is verse 6. Listen to this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Plant one seed, you get one little plant, one head of grain. Plant lots of seeds, lots of plants, lots of heads of grain. And so Paul says you must give willingly... And then he sounds like someone who appears on your television screen at 3am in the morning saying, send me $100 in the mail right now, and you'll be wealthy beyond compare. How is it that this verse is the foundation of Paul's argument for the way that you can end up must giving willingly, because if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly, but if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. To understand it, there are three keys in the passage that you need to come and see with me. So I want you to pull these apart as we go through the text. The first thing Paul says is if you are going to sow bountifully, you need plenty of seed for the sowing. How do you get seed for the sowing? The answer is you don't need to get it, your Father in heaven will supply it for you. Look at how much Paul kind of shows you about the nature of the God who is gracious to supply your seed starts in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I mean, it is a passage. This verse just kind of overflows with language that's kind of brimming over the top of your cup and kind of encompassing the whole of the world. But what he says is, do you remember your God? Remember the one who made everything the one who gives life and breath to everything, the one without whom a sparrow does not fall from the sky, the one who feeds all of the creatures great and small, the one who possesses the cattle on a thousand hills, the one who can actually give you everything because the entire universe already belongs to him and who is able to supply you with even more than you could imagine or dream of in your wildest moments. If you're worried about having what you need in order to be generous, don't worry. God will supply what you need so that you may abound in every good work. But Paul doesn't stop there if the overflowing language, he piles image upon image upon top of one another about God. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. No sower ever sows without what they've received from God. No eater ever eats what they haven't received from God. Um, When you go down to Woolies and buy your groceries, when you go to Aldi and bring the stuff home, the stuff that you bring home, all of it has been provided by the Lord. Nobody eats apart from the hand of God. Nobody has seed for sowing apart from the hand of God. And then finally, Paul says, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. It's not kind of some mysterious reference to the possibility of winning Powerball. It's actually a generous reminder that the God who holds the whole world in his hands longs for you to be generous, is delighted to supply your needs so that you can be so. And so Paul's beginning, so sparingly, reap sparingly, so bountifully, reap bountifully, is not an attempt to squeeze you out of your hard-earned cash so that he can fly around the world in his own personal earjet doing his ministry thing. It's actually a plea to respond in generosity to the generosity of the God who supplies you with every single good thing that you possess in his created world. So the first in God in Paul's argument as he tells you to sow richly is God is able to supply you with everything that you need. The second plank is that Paul wants you to understand that what you sow and what you reap are in two different spheres of reality. What you sow materially, you reap in righteousness. And in order to see it, you actually need to dig a little further into the passage with me. Come and look at verses 8 and 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He is distributed freely, He is given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, with the person beside you, who is the He in verse 9? 30 seconds, go. All right, the 30 seconds is over. What's your answer? (laughs) It's Jesus, right? God, whatever it is. I mean, his righteousness endures forever. If you didn't get it in the first five seconds, you were going to miss it, right? Not to mention that God was the subject of verse 8 and so logically is the subject of verse 9. It's not God at all. The psalm that this comes from, the entire psalm, is the description of the one who fears the Lord and is blessed. In fact, in Psalm 112, the one who is distributed freely, who is given to the poor, and whose righteousness endures forever is the person who fears God. And in fact, as that psalm unpacks the nature of the righteousness of the man who fears the Lord, wealth and righteousness and riches and righteousness and generosity and righteousness are held together over and over in the psalm. The psalm begins by declaring that the man who fears God and delights in his commandments is greatly blessed. And then we're told wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. We're told that he's gracious, merciful and righteous. And then we're told it is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. And then finally, late in the psalm, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. To summarise the psalm, The righteous man is the one who is generous and just righteousness goes together with liberality and generosity and an overflowing of goodness and the sharing of what you have with the people around about you now friends that's actually really important for us as we kind of think because for most of us righteousness is kind of a forensic category that's tied up with a technical discussion of what happens in the atonement around punishment and the judgment of god and Those things are all true. But when you start to unpack the nature of righteousness in the Old Testament and when you unpack the nature of what Paul lands on in terms of righteousness here, righteousness is actually about the person who shares the character of God and it's connected with generosity and delight and riches and justice and an overflowing goodness where you share all the goodness that you experience as a fearer of the Lord with all of those around us righteousness is not uptight or pernickety or concerned with rules it's not about sticking to the details or being slightly aloof or generally unpleasant righteousness actually is a word that describes all of the goodness of god and by god's grace the one who fears the lord becomes righteous and in his righteousness delights in generosity and justice So when Paul says sow sparingly, reap sparingly, sow bountifully and reap bountifully, he wants you to sow materially, but he wants you to reap the harvest of righteousness. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What Paul sees being sown and what he sees being reaped occur in two realities. You give away stuff, you get the character of God. You you, you give away, you know, pieces of paper and coins and and you give away your food or you you lend people your car or you, you serve them with the stuff that you have. And what gets back in return is the righteousness of God. But it's more than that, actually. Generosity springs off this whole chain of goodness that flows out in the rest of the passage. And here's his third key. Look at what happens when you're generous to others. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. When you give... The ministry of this service will supply the needs of the saints. There is just the joy and delight of seeing someone else's distress or need alleviated and the goodness that comes from that. In God's world there is a delight in doing good and seeing the good that you do and rejoicing under God in the privilege of being involved in helping that person out or helping them suffer a little less or just giving them something that's going to make their life a little bit easier. There is a goodness just in that thing in itself. But Paul says that's just the very beginning of the plant. The plant grows and flourishes and it overflows with thanksgiving to God, verse 11. It's going to produce thanksgiving to God, verse 12. It's going to overflow in many thanksgivings to God. When you give generously and people's needs are alleviated, people... Give thanks to God for what's taken place. They delight in the Lord who supplied in the first place and give thanks for the God who has given to them through your hand. In fact, not only do they um, delight in the God who has given so that they can have, but they actually glorify him. Verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Giving alleviates their need. Giving overflows in their thankfulness. Giving actually results in the glorification of God. And if that's not enough, here's the real winner for you. Verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Have you ever noticed how you give thanks for and pray for the people who are generous towards you? That is a natural human outworking. But Paul says as you give to the the saints in Jerusalem who are starving, do you know what they're going to do? They're going to give thanks to God and they're going to come before the throne of the Father in heaven and they're going to pray for you. (laughs) Those people are going to bring you before the heavenly throne and ask God to keep growing you in generosity and righteousness and in godliness and in a life that overflows with all of the goodness that you experience because you know Jesus in the gospel. I mean, if you want someone to pray for you, be generous to them. But I don't think Paul's doing this stingy kind of transactional thing. He's just talking about the reality of the way the world works when God's in control and when goodness starts to overflow in many ways. And Paul gets to the end of this string of blessings. Their needs are met. God is thanked and glorified and they bring you before your Father in heaven. And verse 15, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. How good is it the way that God works in the world as we are generous and the generosity overflows and righteousness flows out and the world is transformed? Friends, our sense of what is good is so hopelessly twisted when it gets tied up with our material possessions. Why would you not give away what you have for the sake of the good of the other and the glory of God and for for them praying for your growth in righteousness? What would you not give away in order to delight in and enjoy all of those things? But remember where we started, you must give willingly. I want you to come back with me now to verse 13. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. You must give willingly is actually the logic of the entire gospel. You see, how does this come about? It comes about because you confessed Christ as Lord and because you submitted yourself under his lordship to what is actually good for you, his call to give up your goods and to live for his kingdom. That you must give willingly is of the logic of the very heart of the gospel. Because of course you must give up your life to Christ. And when Christ comes, he does say put off sin and he does say put off righteousness. And that's not an optional extra. That is the reality of living with Christ Jesus as king. But your submission to Christ is so much for your good and for the good of others and for the good of the world in which you live... If you don't do it willingly, you're an idiot. (laughs) Like, it just doesn't make any sense to do anything else. So, brothers and sisters, can I encourage you to beware of the spirit of your age? In our world, obligation is opposed to freedom, and compulsion is opposed to delight. But that is not the logic of the gospel or of the king of the world's. He actually tells you what is good for you and invites you to live it out. He, in fact, commands you to live under his lordship. But he does that because it's for your very deep good. But you and I just, we drown in a world that trains us that authority is evil, that the one thing that you must not do is obey anyone, anywhere, ever, because you will be somehow giving up your autonomy or losing a precious reality about who you are or letting some evil power take over the world. Authority is abused. There are all sorts of wrongs that are done and we must resist them. But to sit and to live in submission under authority is not evil. It's actually deeply good and of the very nature of the gospel. And so I just want to invite you to be suspicious of the world around you just a little bit and of the message that you are fed all the time. And I want you to be aware of how it trickles into our gospel preaching. When you tell people to obey, when you invite people to do their duty, or when you actually bring some pressure to bear and invite them to actually live in light of the gospel, that is not anti-grace but it is all of grace. If it is done wisely, understanding the lordship of Christ, understanding that you are not the authority and understanding what it is that you call people to. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Submission is deeply good and obedience is deeply good. And they are not anti-gospel categories. And listen what happens when people obey. Verse 13, they will glorify God because of your submission. Verse 14, they will long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And in fact, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. When Paul says you must give willingly, he means it. And he thinks that he's preaching the very logic of the gospel itself. Is your obligation to Jesus to be generous? Yes. Is it your privilege under Christ to be generous? Yes. God's grace stands the world on its head. So let me ask you, what work does God need to do in your heart so that you might delight in your duty? What needs to be challenged or repented of so that you might hear the call to generosity and give cheerfully and willingly because God loves a cheerful giver? Those who are made righteous by the gospel truly should be those who are just and generous. And when we are, by God's grace, a chain of goodness is unleashed in his world that is for his praise and glory. Let's pray. Father, as we read uh, this section, and as we have done over the last few weeks, we're struck again by the folly of our heart. Um, Father, that, that place in us that as soon as we're told to do something, we rebel and run away and try to do our own thing. Father, we pray, please, that you would help us to see the precious logic of the gospel, that the kingship of Jesus is for our very deep good. And so we pray, Father, for humble hearts that long to submit to him and to all authority that you have set within our world. And we pray, please, Father, especially that you might help us to delight in being generous, giving willingly and cheerfully because you love a cheerful giver, but knowing that it is our duty because our Lord has died for us. Father, do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.